Hi everybody, I'm Lewis Keynes and welcome to Infinite Leaders Live. Our why for what we do is all about being better. We're committed to helping fellow educators, coaches and those working in education to be infinite learners. We want to encourage all people working in the sector to be open to ideas and suggestions on how to improve and develop practice and also support one another becoming better human beings as we go along. I'm joined by my colleague and friend Alan Dunstan. Thank you, Lewis, and really looking forward to, to diving deeper into understanding how, how leaders with an infinite mindset translate this across to their teams. We, we really want to focus on the things that you don't get taught at university or on your coaching courses. We want real-life lessons from real-life people with real-life experience. And we're learning as well here. This isn't our day job. We're recording live, and I'm sure there'll be a few mistakes as we go along. Uh, we'd love your feedback along the way. Anything that you think we can do better, tell us. Anything that you think we've done all right, we'd love to know that as well. And you can get in touch with us via Twitter and the different social medias that we're active on. Alan, do you want to introduce our first guest? Yeah, privileged to welcome Simon Mann onto our first show. Uh, our Xbox boss from uh, BSM and a, and a true example of what an infinite leader actually looks like. So get your pens and papers ready. I think there's going to be some absolute gems of wisdom today. So Simon, can you just tell us briefly about how's it going with COVID-19 and a little bit about your journey to where you're at now? Well, um, COVID-19 has been interesting. I, I'm actually uh, looking back on, um, so I'm in New Zealand, which actually makes life a little bit easier than a lot of places. And we had about five weeks of being pretty solidly locked down. It's really helped me, I suppose, in some ways of the transition between being ahead to working for myself. I've managed to get myself into some routines, set up workspaces, um, connect up pretty well, actually. Zoom's become part of my life um, and, and part of the way I interact, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I've got myself into exercise routines, which have been good, been out on the bike a lot, um, and given me a lot of time to reflect and think about the things that matters. I think one of the things that's been really good about COVID is it's uh, that less is more, you know, and thinking about the things that really matter and where you spend your time and, and how you're using that time. And uh, yeah, I've, no complaints. I think if I've got a complaint, it's been slightly short in New Zealand. And I've just got this sneaking suspicion. It's, it's gone so quickly that it's maybe not going to impact people's behaviour moving forward as positive as it might do in countries that have, 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 have had a more sustained period of lockdown. That may be, but I may, I may be proved wrong on both counts. Yeah, I mean... It's very different all over the world, and, and we've obviously, I think the Philippines now has been the longest lockdown in, in the world, it's over up to three months. Um, it's given you time to reflect, it's given us all time to reflect. Just take us through from, from that first instance of being a teacher and then your journey along the way. I know it's going to be pretty long, but try and keep it fairly brief. What, what inspired you to actually start on this journey and, and where are you at now with your, with your career? been quite organic, organic really. I mean, I, I, I was at school and, and really the two things that I, I enjoyed about school were maths and PE um, and playing sport and, and the rest of it was really pretty much take or leave. Um, I, I was lucky enough to get my A-levels. A lot of my friends didn't. Um, and then that gave me, I came to a crossroads about what I wanted to do. Um, and my initial reaction was I didn't really want to go into university. I'd kind of had enough of learning. My dad called my bluff and off I went to work and by about November, I decided that wasn't what I wanted to do at all and kind of reframed my thinking um, and, and decided um, to do a sports science degree, um, largely because it interested me and it was an area that I was actually kind of attracted to. I was playing sport regularly and, and really keen on sport. And, and I'd done some work um, with some summer schools and really enjoyed my work with students. So I kind of had it in my mind that teaching was possibly there. Um, and after a year off, I, I, I trudged, trudged off to Carnegie, where Lewis also went. Um, and I was one of the first cohorts through on the sports science degree, which was really uh, on reflection a glorified teacher training experience, but packed with um, practical PE, 16 hours a week of practical in my first year and about 12 in my second two years. Um, I did a couple of summer camps to the States, working with really low income kids out of um, the Bay Area, San Francisco and Oakland. Really, I really enjoyed. Um, carried on with my sport um, and naturally progressed to do a PGCE and become a PE teacher. A um, couple of years, one, one working in, in Castleford, another working in um, an education behaviour disturbed school in 
Lincolnshire, a uh, couple of years traveling where I met my wife, back into working in London, five years in Haringey. And I think really the sort of front end of my career was characterized by taking my sport very seriously. I took teaching seriously and I really wanted to do the best job I could. But I, I focused really a lot of time on making sure I was, I, was, I was playing sport as well as I could, which wasn't as well as it I could have done, I, I guess, and, and certainly wasn't a career for me. Um, and then as, as my um, sporting career diminished, my sort of focus on developing as a, a leader uh, and a teacher, um, not a teacher really, but a leader, kind of, kind of came into being and I moved to being a deputy head of department and then a head of department. Uh, we migrated to New Zealand um, and I went into South Auckland. So I was, went from Haringey to South Auckland. So it was all very low income work, um, low income areas. Um, moved into a, a deputy head role, pastoral. I've always had a real passion for student welfare. Um, and then moved overseas and, and took a job as a head of a small sort of failing high school in, in Hong Kong, um, American system. Um, had a fantastic four years there, really working as part of a team to develop the school. And then into a huge job at Garden. So I went from about, I'll get this right, 16 teachers um, and 280 kids to uh, about 2,100 kids and 360 staff and three different campuses and, and, uh, and it kind of was a real make or break for me. I had no idea whether I was going to be able to do the job or not. Um, I, was, I was surprised I was interviewed. I was shocked when they gave me the job and I spent 18 months trying to work out whether it was for me, whether I was capable of doing the work. Um, and after about 18 months, things began to change and shift and, and I felt like I was actually capable of leading a school of that size and then Five years there, we, I feel that we did a fantastic job transforming that school, making it a very different place to the one we found. Um, and then I moved across to BSM, where I spent seven years with you, Alan, six of which were Lewis. Um, and again, kind of took a school that was in a pretty good space and, and, and endeavoured to make it a school that was in a far better space. But I think most of it's characterised by I never really had a vision of being ahead of school didn't really have a vision of being a deputy head, didn't really have a vision. It just kind of, I always describe it as being a result of being slightly over-competitive and looking up and thinking, oh, I can do that a bit better than they're doing it. And I've got great ideas about how we could do that. And just kind of slowly but surely moved up until I found myself in a position that I found a bit bizarre, really, which was leading a really big, prestigious school in, in Asia. Um, and, and not something I expected at the beginning of my career. But I think that sometimes those people who get thrust into leadership quite often are better leaders than the ones that kind of aspire to be leaders because quite often aspiring to be leaders is aspiring to hold a position of power and often that's not exactly the right reason to be, uh, to be leading, particularly in education. So Simon, that's a summary. tell us about that 18 month period. I think that, that's the bit that stands out for me. You, you got given an opportunity, as you described it there, that you didn't really expect to be given. You know, you're in charge of a lot, a lot of people, a huge school, a very prestigious and high-profile school. What, what kind of, what kind of things did you do during that 18-month period to try and keep yourself on a level and, and, and try and understand that maybe you could do this? What, what were the, what were the indicators along the way that you're doing all right, and, and, and actually, this, this is a challenge you could rise to. None for about 12 months. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I think my experience, my experience, I, I kind of, I, I took. I, Taught in some really challenging areas um, with a lot of teachers who were excellent and, and a number of teachers who were quite jaded. Um, and I'd begun to realise that the only thing, the only way things get done is you actually try, if you can actually bring people along, it's a terrible phrase, but on the journey. So if you can actually engage people in, in trying to make a change. And I turned up in Hong Kong um, and it was just at the end of SARS, which is quite topical at the moment. The school had dropped, I think, dropped its role by about 40, 50%. There was about 120 kids in the school. There was a group of teachers there who were actually really able and, and, and keen, but they, they had their previous head sacked. And it was, it was very, a very kind of flat time, but it was that classic thing when, when it's really chaotic and, and things aren't going well. Everybody's looking, looking for the next step. And we collectively, and I did feel it was collectively, that I was one of 17 people who transformed the school because we sat down and looked at what needed doing and then collectively just went and did it um, and you know to some degree we rode the wave of Hong Kong's uh, resurgence a lot of people were coming back from Canada and overseas uh, the, the sort of fear of 
Chinese rule versus British rule was was out the window and, and SARS obviously was a thing of the past. So the, 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 the role grew naturally um, and we grew the school around it. And, and I think obviously my, my appointment was, I, I don't, not to some degree, but was, was mainly on the back of the, uh, the guy who was running the school's division for Taylor's group, Iron Garden at the time, um, who had quite heavy connections with Hong Kong and, and kind of obviously word had got out a little bit that I'd done a decent job and when I applied, I got an interview, which I was quite surprised about. So the 18 months, I walked into a school that um, it had just been ranked one of the top five schools in the world by the Guardian newspaper. So you know, it, was, it was only downhill from there, really, wasn't it? Um, did you have imposter so we, syndrome, Simon? Sorry? Did you, did you ever suffer from imposter syndrome? Oh, always. I still do. Yeah. You know, I'm still do. I'd still sit there and think, you know, look at myself in the mirror and wonder, whether I can do a job and, and, and certainly when I walked into that school, I wondered. Um, and then you have moments, don't you? You kind of, the, the penny drops that, that, that you, you've got something to contribute. So when I went around this, this, this highly prestigious school that had just been voted one of the top five schools in the world, I, I could just see so much that needed doing. Um, you know, it was a good school, it, it, it absolutely exceptional exam results. Um, lovely sense of community, great kids. Um, but some big gaps between, in my mind, and this is just in my mind, about what it was and what it could be, um, and whether it, it had kind of a reputation at that time of being a, a, a highly academic school without the, the whistles and bells. Um, it was, it's, it's next to Alice Smith, and Alice Smith was considered the kind of more international of the two schools. Um, a new head came into secondary or head came up through the system and in secondary at the same time I arrived and a new head came into primary and I think we collectively believed there were an awful lot of things we could do better um, and an awful lot of things the school could do but but, but having a, an idea of what those are and actually realising that is is a different game so the first thing I'd say Lewis is I got up and went to work every day so even when I was having days that I was questioning myself, I just got up and went to work and got on with it. My day was full of meeting with people. And I kind of spent the first probably six months getting a feel for who was out there. Actually, no, I'll rephrase that. The first thing I did, um, and I, I think you've experienced this at BSM, we sat down as a uh, group of teachers. So there was about, as I say, about 200, 200 plus teachers plus another 140 support staff sat down and we talked about what it is we wanted the school to be. What was our vision for learning? And it, and it became called the student vision. Um, and we, we did the same with the parents. We did it in the World, Ca this World Cafe model. Um, and we gathered all this information and we, we kind of processed it and we then revised it into a series of statements um, that were clear statements or, or clear headings, five headings um, about what we could be, you know, one of which alluded to academic um, endeavour, the rest of a, a broader kind of more holistic approach to education. Um, we then refined it with the families, we refined it with the school, we took it to the board, we got it agreed. And, and of course, I think that that was, and that was what we based the next five years on. But the question was, could we actually, did people really understand what they were letting themselves in for, was one of the questions, um, and understand what that meant. And the second question was, could we actually adjust the way people approach their teaching, their learning, the classroom environment, what goes on after school, to aspire to something that was part of the way there. Um, you know, I think that you've heard me say this before. If you're going to have service learning in school, it means every kid is involved in service learning. It doesn't mean you've got a couple of service learning clubs. If you have, if, if you have a sports program, it means that every kid has access to a sports program, as opposed to we have a basketball club that some small percentage of kids go to. So it's kind of that approach of thinking about things really holistically, looking at, at looking at broadening our teaching practice so it was uh, more inclusive and a little bit more holistic. And then it was a case of working out who was out there who would potentially champion uh, that change. Um, obviously, I had the two head of schools, um, one of which I aligned with very quickly. The other kind of was slightly sceptical about my, my capacity to do the work I was, I was charged with doing. But, um, you know, we, 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 we worked through that over the first year or so. Um, we had a few hiccups on the way. I was, uh, I was the, uh, the butt of a number of rather unpleasant statements made on the, I think it was the Times Education Supplement blog 
um, about, you know, there was some quite unpleasant stuff being said about me. I'd kind of been through that before. I'd had it, I'd had it at a couple of schools, uh, really challenging schools where people were questioning whether you could do the work you were, you were charged to do. And, and I kind of, I just took the attitude that, you know, it goes with the territory to some degree. And I think after the first Christmas break, the first term was just relentless. Um, and I got through it and then I went away at Christmas and kind of sat down. I'm like, why do I really want to get out of this? And am I going to let these people bug me as much as they're bugging me? Um, got a bit more thick skinned about it, went back and began to kind of just get some small things going in different places, like almost testing the water, seeing what might work, who might champion things rather than trying to sort of implement a whole school change. Um, did a lot of conversations about learning. We didn't begin even to, to approach what high quality learning looked at, looked like at Garden until we were comfortable that people had done enough reading about research and thinking about it and having conversations about it. Um, did a lot of work with the PE department about being more inclusive, opening up clubs and programs. Very difficult, big school numbers wise, small school facilities wise, had to kind of revamp things to change spaces looked at where service learning could start getting integrated into the curriculum but all little bits around the big school um end of the first year really felt i wasn't up to it um really felt that it wasn't going to move um but i always kind of describe it so with, with schools and i think big schools more than small schools but all schools a little bit like turning an oil tanker really hard to start it turning but once it starts turning really hard to stop it turning and about 18 months in, there were just these sort of lights at the end of the tunnel. Um, remember this, there had this incredible conversation that was led by one of, <laughs> one of the more reluctant members of staff with his team um, in, around the sixth form programme where we wanted to introduce a diploma alongside A-levels to kind of broaden and enrich the programme. And uh, he actually led the whole thing from the start to finish and persuaded the team and kind of I walked out uh, just chuckling to myself um, with with a colleague of mine, actually Chris Jones, who's um, and we kind of were just like almost amazed at what had just happened. But that was kind of that was little things like that. And about eighteen months, and I thought, well, yeah, I think we're in with a shout here. I think we could start really doing something different. And uh, about two years in, I, I became confident that I was capable of leading leading the change. And um, and the next three years, that's exactly what we did. And and you get a huge change over a staff over that period of time, obviously. Um, people buy into what you're doing or they don't buy into what you're doing and people decide to leave of their own accord and some people it's not the right place to be and, other, and you, you're able to bring in people that are aligned with the, uh, the thinking you have. But you don't always get that right either. You, you employ some people who are not quite where you expect and then you employ some people who are loads more than you expect. So, hmm. I, 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 get that bit I know it's something that, that Alan and I speak about quite a lot. How, how does that work with the recruitment? How, how can you... you you gauge whether that you're getting that right or not. I don't know that you. I don't know that there's a formula. I think a lot of it's about EQ. I think a lot of it's about emotional intelligence and and, and being able to read people a little bit. Um, and I, I'm a great believer in employing people for potential. Um, I think if if you get the finished article largely, unless they're absolutely totally aligned with what you're doing and where you're going, and they are still going to want to change and develop you in a bit of trouble. Um, whereas I think if you get someone who is really keen on learning, is, wants to explore their, their capabilities as teachers more, and teachers first and foremost, um, you know, you talk about your, your language, infinite learners, you know, and I think that's, that's, that's the game. You want somebody who's got a good background of experience, who have a philosophy that aligns with, and I would, okay, I'll go back to it, get your vision and mission right and make sure that's the centre of the conversation you have with people. So, you know, that's where it's got to start. And then you're looking for people that are going to, and I think you've heard me say this before, you're not just looking for people who are going to come in and align with the vision and mission, you're looking for people who are going to come in and add to the vision and mission, are going to bring something new, are going to and put some things on the table that, that maybe we haven't thought about. So it kind of, and then it, then it evolves. Like I say, it's turning that old tanker, it kind of just grows its own legs. And, and the more you get in, the more it goes on, the more you sort of can take yourself out of the conversations and not be the person that's saying yes or no. And you're kind of, you're just saying, run with the ball, give it a go. People are coming to you with solutions rather than, than, uh, than problems. And, and it kind of generates its own momentum. And I think 
my, my feeling about garden was it was I was so confident it was going to continue on the journey when I left and, and I'm really pleased I think it has and I think it still is um, and I think that's down to the quality of the leadership of that school um, allowing that sort of organic development because if, if the school had stayed still where where I left it it would it would now that's no good either you want something that just evolves and continues to uh, to change does that answer your question Luke? <laughs> I'd like to come back to the point you made about reluctant members of staff uh, and it certainly as, as Lewis alluded to it, it's something we talk about and how how do you deal with reluctant members of staff? Do you, do you try and get them on board and make it your life's journey and mission to get them on board? Or do you just, do you, do you try and think, oh, you know what, move on at the end of your contract? What's your values in that sense? Somewhere in the middle, really. I think you, um, I think you do everything you can to, to try and support people, be the best people they can and the best people for the environment you're in. But I mean, I think it's, it's really challenging when a school's been going in one direction and then a new leadership comes in and takes it in another direction. I think that's, that's really difficult for existing members of staff. Um, and I think we all have a level of uh, ownership of the change we make and the developments we make. And when you see things maybe being unpacked, middle leaders maybe having some of the things unpacked that they've done, that, that may be very challenging. I just think being honest but not blunt. Um, so being being open, not, not personalising it, um, having the conversations that need to be had. Um, but I think there's that balance. You, you, you only have a certain number of hours in a day. And I think as a leader, in the end, you've got to work out where your hours are best spent. And if you're just going to invest hours and hours and hours and hours trying to get someone to change the way in which they function and behave, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do for adults, um, or you can spend that time with four other people who you know are, are just just going for it and, and you can encourage them and support them you've just got to weigh up the cost benefit of investing huge amounts of time in trying to move people that possibly you're never going to move um and i would say you know i'd love to think i was this iconic leader that changes the way people think about the world and their approaches to education and 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 on taking over a school, we transformed the way the staff thought. It's, it's kind of not true. And I guess one of the things, if I reflect back on both Garden and BSM, is it was a big turnover of staff. There were a certain, certain group of people who were just kind of up for it from, from the get-go and really contributed. There were a group of people who sat in the middle, some of which stayed, some of which left. And there were a group of people who we were never going to move. Um, and maybe one of the things I've got better at is working out who I'm not going to be able to affect and, 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 and basically in the knowledge that they're going to leave. That not, not you're going to tell them they've got to go, but they're just going to go, this isn't for me. I don't really enjoy this and I think I, I need to go somewhere else. And then there will be the odd person who you actually have to encourage to leave. You try not to do that much because I think it really damages the fabric of a place. Um, and I think that's, that's something you've got to you've got to worry about in schools. That comment you said there to support people to be the best they can be. Do you see that as what the role of a head teacher is? Is is that that's, a wider statement about? That's just leadership. The rest of it's management, isn't it? I think you know the thing I love about schools is it is a completely people based um, industry. You know, it's students, it's teachers, it's families. That's it. I can't, you know, you, you can maybe do something about your, your, your electricity bill or you can cut down your photocopying. But really, the, the metrics are all about people. And I think that leadership is all, all about getting the best out of people. Um, you know, I've, you've heard me say this before, that some people are 12-hour-a-day people, other people are 8-hour-a-day people. You're not going to get a school full of 12-hour people a day, but you've got to try and make the person the best they can be in the eight hours a day they're with you. Um, and I think if we do that, and I think as teachers, we approach kids in the same way. You know, what can we do to get the best out of this child? You know, and then, the, and for me, parents are partners in the process. I think quite often international and fee-paying schools get into this customer, customer service type approach. And I think that's wrong. I think you've just got to come, you've got to come at it from a, a partnership role. So it is all about getting the best out of the people around you. Um, and I think that's, that's the job, period. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. I mean, reflecting on on your time at BSM, it, 
it's brilliant to hear that your core values just coming through. Um, tell us about your most challenging period, Simon, as a leader. Oh, <laughs> most challenging <laughs> periods. So the, the single most challenging period was, uh, was the tragic loss of a, a student uh, to suicide, a young adult, um, and the impact that had on the school and the impact it had on me personally um, that went on, I think, realistically for about five years, but went on quite intensely for about 18 months. But I kind of I look at that and I, I then go back to kind of earlier periods in my life, times at school when things were really challenging I wasn't getting on or, you know, there were issues around violence and, and then this bullying and stuff where you, things haven't gone right in your sport and you're really frustrated. Um, I, had a, I had a really sort of almost a career-changing moment when I was in South Auckland where a change in leadership school, uh, leadership just completely pulled the rug out from under me as, uh, in my position as a deputy head. And, and that was incredibly challenging. And I, I kind of had these questions about whether I wanted to stay or go, whether I could be loyal to the leadership of the school that I felt was, was undermining the, the needs of the kids. Um, so I think my first thing would be, there's nothing quite like a load of crises in your past to deal with the crisis at the time of, uh, you know, so I don't think, I think if I'd, it had been plain sailing at garden and, and it wasn't, you know, and I had my, I had my, uh, run-ins with the board there and if it had been plain sailing in my time in South Auckland and plain sailing in the rest of my life I don't think I'd have coped at all. I think you build resilience um, to some degree from the experiences you go through um, and then you've got you know we had this kind of as you know this this once once in a lifetime I hope um, experience um, which was challenging difficult at times like an out-of-body experience, almost watching myself deconstruct um, in the knowledge that you were also being watched like a hawk by the rest of the staff. But for those that, 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 don't, that don't know what happened, um, as a result, one of, a teacher at the school um, was kind of almost forced to leave and leave the country very quickly um, and didn't come back, even though we expected her to. I think teachers were feeling very vulnerable because they felt it could have been men. Um, I think they were looking to leadership for stability um, and making sure that everything on the outside looked like we were coping, even though on the inside there was there were nagging uh, concerns, I think, for us all, whether we were, uh, whether, whether we were going to come out the other end all right. Um, obviously, we felt very secure in, in the way in which the school had attempted to, uh, to deal with the situation, but we were in a country where we... We, we didn't really understand the landscape legally or, or, or educationally in, in the way that the locals did. Um, so we had all these kind of these pressures coming in. Um, I had personal, severe personal pressures. There were, there were legal uh, complaints made. There were um, civil suits filed and there were, there were complaints at the Department of Education. There was a period of time that it was being used by a certain member, of the, a certain group of the community to try and um, see me out the door and see the, see the chair of the board of trustees out the door. Um, so all these things were going on, but at the same time, it was really important that, that, that I didn't look like that's what was going on. I came to school every day and I put a smile on my face and I kept people up to date with what was going on and didn't make it overly dramatic. Um, and that's a really challenging conundrum um, and, and working out how you kind of manage yourself through a really challenging time whilst also being seen to manage others and, and having a number of members of staff almost in meltdown, um, you know, and, and if I'm being blunt after the occasion, looking at them and thinking, well, you think you've got it bad, you know, you want to come and sit in my shoes, uh, <laughs> you know, but you, that's not something you can say as a leader. You've just got to, you've just got to deal with what's in front of you. And, and that was, that was incredibly challenging walking around school and not knowing who was for you and who was against you for a period of time, both from staff perspective and from a parent perspective, you know, you get, you get to walk in the shoes of that kid who's having some real social problems and coming in and, and it kind of reminds you of we're all vulnerable. I was 50, what, 55 at the time, maybe 54, 55. And I'm, I'm a pretty stable adult. You know, you kind of reminds you of the difficulties that kids face. Um, every day when they're dealing with that stuff. So it's, it's, uh, it's quite sobering. And uh, 
and certainly changed me a lot as a person coming out the other end. And I think changed the school um, a lot. I mean, I think it was an awful thing to happen. And there's not many pluses, but I think it made us really look at what mattered in the school. It made me look at what mattered to me as a person um, and, and think about some ways forward. So I think, you know, we talked about this before, this kind of idea of that we made a really clear statement to our community. I think it would have only been about six, seven months in. So I think, I think the tragedy occurred in February and, and the next year started was making a statement to our parents that our number one priority was student welfare. And now for the type of parents we've got who are kind of knocking down the door about grades and expecting fantastic university entrance and, and really good IB scores and GCSE scores, that was quite a, quite a big statement to make, but it, it wasn't a statement that was contradicted or, or even questioned by any of our families at that stage. Um, and then thinking about, well, if student welfare is at the core, what do, what does that mean? You know, what does that look like in the way in which we function and, and, the, and the type of programs we offer? And that kind of morphed towards the wellbeing piece that we've, we've really kind of worked on over the last few years. And, and I probably, that's my thing now. It's kind of the bit that really interests me in school leadership. And it's not just the wellbeing bit, it's, it's how you lead schools for wellbeing and how the two interrelate and how that then interrelates with learning. Um, and the type of environment that you want to come to school as, as a leader and a teacher and the type of environment you want your kids. And that was, that was the other interesting thing. Both of my kids went through the schools I worked at. So you get this kind of two perspectives. One is what, what you think's going on because you're a really good leader and everything's going perfectly. And then your kids walking home and going, this is what just happened. And you're sort of sitting there thinking, how can that be happening at the school that I lead? But you get these kind of, I think those are really interesting dynamics. So just to, touching on what you, you mentioned there, you know, you talked about student welfare then becoming a priority. And, and you know, I remember that time well, I'm sure Alan does. It, it was horrendous for everybody associated and working in the school and, and people dealt with it in their different ways. And, you know, one of the things that resonated with me there is that you did see you doing that, you know, getting into school and being visible and being around and being there for people to help you. But that must have taken its toll you know, in terms of pressure and, 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 and stress and, and worry and, and, and emotional energy, that must have really taken its toll on you both personally and professionally. What, what, what kind of things helped during that period where, where this was something you hadn't experienced before that you found really, really tough and, you know, admittedly yourself, you, you never wanted to experience and you hope you never do again? Ah, I think that it's that whole, I've sort of said this before, I think I've said it recently on a couple of podcasts, I gravitated to things that I now understand as being really good for your well-being. So I, not that I'm a really heavy drinker, but I cut down on my alcohol consumption considerably. Now, when it first happened, I thought it was just going to be a week or so, and you'd be going around having a glass of wine and thinking, God, thank God that day's ended. And then when you began to realise it was just going on and on, I cut... I, I, the, the, the impact of alcohol was incredibly negative. You know, that waking up the next morning trying to deal with stuff. So I, I almost cut, it, cut out alcohol. I began to do yoga in the morning, not kind of yoga, yoga, but yoga. I, I went out and I stretched and I did breathing exercises. I was really lucky. I had this small garden um, with a few trees around, but that's how my day started. Now that really, for want of a better word, is now mindfulness. Um, I continued with my exercise programs almost no matter how tired I was, I made sure I exercised. I had to kind of cut down the intensity a little bit because I could see myself making myself sick if I really went for it as I had done in the past. So the exercise, which we all know, is, 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 is a real kind of bonus for well-being. I also did a lot of writing of emails to people who were really pissing me off at the time that I never sent, which now kind of, uh, I've, I've got them somewhere. And I did the same at Gardner. And I reckon I'm going to, one day there's a memoir in there, but I, I kind of, that's journaling. It's kind of getting stuff onto paper so it's not in your head. It's, it's taking that, that away. So, but I didn't kind of read up about journaling. I just, I just did that. And then the savouring piece was when things got too much for me, I just gravitated down to the early years. I used to go sort of hang out down there. You know, you can't go wrong with watching four-year-olds and three-year-olds kind of go ballistic on climbing frames and play with paints. You know, if you, if you can't get a kick out of that, you shouldn't be in education. So then you got the savouring piece. So these were things that I did regularly. And, and then I had my safe place, which was a, a group, a very key group of people who um, were dealing with the situation and did a fantastic job doing a lot of the logistics and the legal stuff behind the scenes while I was charged with keeping the school going and making sure that 
we limited the impact of, of what the school was going through on the, on the learning and, and the teachers. So I had my place I could go in and let off a bit of steam, a confidant, a mentor, the kind of whatever you want to call it, the, the place where you've, you've, got, you've got a connection with someone almost outside the environment you're working in. Um, and those, but even with that, you know, that, that February through to, uh, what is it, February through to June, and particularly the two Senate hearings we, had, we ended up in towards the end, which were really high-pressure situations. I, it was almost like you could watch myself unravel. I could see myself unravelling, um, and it was like, under, and it kind of gave me a real insight to that concept of um, post-traumatic stress disorder, where, where in the past I'd always been able to get through and cope, and this was like so prolonged, this was months at a time, that it was beginning to impact on the way I function. I could see it was beginning to impact on the way I function with other people as well, but there wasn't much I could do about it. I could actually see it happening, and it would be after the occasion. And then I had the moment where I got on the plane that summer and I wasn't sure whether I was actually going to get through the airport on the plane and out of the country. There was some chat about there being a stop travel order. And, I, and you, anything, I think we know this, but anything you go through becomes your new normal. So you found a way through, or I found a way through those five months and I found my moments of joy and I had my fun and, and, and you know, there were all sorts of stuff going on. Um, and I, you know, obviously in the middle of this, I've got family as well. So Kim was kind of really, really upset about how things were going and really frustrated with people. And, and I wasn't communicating everything with her because if I did, I think she'd have been out the door and dragging me with her. And, and then I had a son in school who was, um, fortunately, I just said, everything's fine. And he went, that's fine. I'm going to school now. Um, and then, and then there was that moment where I, I got on the plane and, and we were out of the country and this just weight came off my shoulders. It was, it was palpable, you know, and then I went back in and the weight came and I began to realize that the, the new normal just wasn't normal. Um, and the longer it goes on, the more you get used to it. It was a less intense 12 months after the first six months, but. And, and, and there would be patches where you thought, thought you were through it and then something would change and it would be that weight would be back on your shoulders. But that being able to leave the country, it was almost like flicking a switch. I left the country, I left it behind, I came back into the country, it was back in the game. And I think some of that on, in hindsight was actually my fear for my own personal safety. So my professional work I could do and I could deal with going to the Senate hearings, I could go to the lawyers, I could work on the school, but there was this thing hanging in there that I could be arrested. Uh, I could be stopped from traveling. I could be, I could be, I could be. And, and that, I think that was the bit that was under, un, underpinning my, the, the, the sort of anxiety and the, and the concerns I had. Um, but actually I didn't really think about it like that until we just had the conversation, but that probably was the difference about being in the country or not being in the country because the situation didn't change. We still had a school to run that was under threat of closure to some degree. Still had to make sure that we didn't lose staff because we had a fantastic group of staff by that stage and didn't want them leaving because they felt they were unsafe. And we still had kids to educate, many of whom were completely oblivious to what was going on because they weren't, engaged, they weren't old enough to know the student who'd, who'd gone through things and weren't really interested. And loads of our parents didn't have a clue. That was a really interesting thing that came apparent sort of three years later. I didn't realise that was going on. We kind of, well, where were you? You know, we were communicating this with you regularly, but they just weren't interested and that's fine because they just wanted to send their kids to school. You know, we didn't want to lose student numbers as well. So that, yeah, so it was quite, I don't know if I, I can't even remember the question there. So I've remembered. I'm just intrigued there, Simon. It must have been a really lonely place to, to be in because you're fronting all this up. But who was your sounding board? Who, who did you then go to for advice? Or were you just taking this all on your own shoulders? I think to some degree you do. And I think to some degree you shouldn't. And I, I think it would have been incredibly powerful to have someone outside the school that I could have phoned up and talked to. But I didn't have that. And I kind of, I think there's a, that thing about, um, and this is, a, this is a retrospective statement. It's that it's almost you feel like you're showing a sign of weakness by going out, out and asking for help and you're the head of school and you should be able to sort it out and I've got this under control. And, and hindsight would say to me that if I'd had someone who'd been through similar things to talk to, I think that would have helped. Um, the lawyers we worked with, he was so reassuring and so knowledgeable. And uh, it was, it, he was like going to him. I always came out feeling 
reassured. Um, Simon Bulo, the chair of the board, was absolutely amazing, as was Alison Boyk Henderson and uh, and Catherine Daniels. You know, they were they were incredibly supportive. A lot of degriming, you know, seeing the funny side of stuff. Not the funny side of the suicide by any stretch of the imagination, but the funny side of some of the other nonsense that was going on. Um, you know, I, I could tell stories about this forever, but, you know, some <laughs> things happened that just made me kind of, I, I, it, it was almost comical at the end of it. And that's question, it, Simon, about on, on this topic, is you're right, you know, it's such a deep and, and complicated topic in many ways that you could spend forever on it. But one more on this. And, and it's something that, you know, we, we talked about back at the time, and I, and I think a lot of people could, could be really intrigued by this. What kept you there? You were a family. Um, you wanted to put your family's safety and, and, and the personal happiness of, of that household ahead of anything. There would have been, I'm sure, um, a number of people who put in your position wouldn't have, uh, have stuck that out. They would, they would have left and, and they would have taken the opportunity to say, you know what, I'm getting wrapped up in something here that, that really isn't a fault of your own and, 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 and I don't want to be anywhere near it. I want to distance myself from that. What, what actually kept you there to, to do the, the job that you did? Well, the first thing I'd say is, 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 is I, I wouldn't have thought that that would be a bad response, you know, if, if I decided to leave it. And I accept people doing that. I mean, I, and whether me staying made the place a better place or a worse place, I don't know. What kept me there I think, when, and I have thought about this, I think there's two things. One is I'm, and this is a failing and a strength, and I say this often about, I am ridiculously competitive and I hate losing. And I saw this as a win and lose game. I saw, I felt that if I'd walked, I would allow the people who were trying to undermine the school and use the tragic death of a student to... Um, to get their own way and to change a leadership and to make the school something that they they wanted it to be and something that it shouldn't should never have been. So, one, I'm ridiculously competitive and I hate losing. Two, I think I've got this, and it comes from my dad. I have a I have a kind of sense of uh, right and wrong that is quite black and white, and it's not the most helpful thing. Again, sometimes it's held me in really good stead. In fact, I would say it this way. What it's allowed me to do is, is, is quite a lot of my own, quite a lot of the problems I've had with um, leadership, other leaders and boards and stuff like that. I can put it all down to me. It's my, it, they've all been my responsibility, but they've nearly all been underpinned by me believing something's right or something's wrong. Um, and what it's allowed me to do is walk away from those jobs, even though I may have been frustrated with the way things finished and, and, and my, my relationships, but I've been able to look at myself in the mirror and say, what I've done, I've done because I've, I've, I've totally believed what I was doing was right. Um, and that was, that's my dad. That's just my dad all over. Um, and I think that's the other bit. I just had this, it's a righteousness that probably isn't helpful at times, but I, I just felt that to, to allow what was going on to be seen through in a manner that it would have been seen through possibly if I'd walked just wasn't right and it wasn't right for not just me and bsm and the teachers there and the kids there it wasn't right for education it wasn't right for the next school down the road or the next leader in or you know if 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 a tragedy like that can happen and people can actually try and appoint and apportion blame for it where does that leave us as educators you know, are we going to question every single move we make every time we have a, a, a we have to deal with a difficult issue? Do we basically turn around and just just avoid the tough conversations? And that wouldn't be good for any child in a school or any parents at a school. So that was that kind of righteousness were the two things that drove me. And it didn't come without um, some personal cost. My my relationship with Kim was really challenging during that period because. She was frustrated with me about not talking to her. I knew I couldn't talk to her about the stuff that was going on because it was too personal to her. So I couldn't, you know, a lot of people say, I say, who do you talk to? They say, my wife, and I think that's great, you know, but there'll be a time possibly where that is exactly who you can't talk to because you have to be able to come home to sanity. I wanted to come home and not talk about it. Kim wanted to know what was going on, you know. So it was all the, the, there were the, te the tensions around the edges as well that you just got to kind of weigh up and, and I, I probably didn't handle that anywhere near as well as I should have done. You know, all my energy was trying to 
keep a brave face on at school and you come home and you relax and you're probably not the best husband, you know, and not the best partner and not the best dad because you, you, you know, you're probably the, they're probably seeing all the bad stuff, you know, that, that kind of, that point at which the, uh, the anxiety uh, that overflows and you just kind of, you know, you're more likely to lose the plot over something that's really not worth losing the plot over because you've, you've, you've exhausted all your energy of trying to self-regulate elsewhere. Yeah. I think those two things probably drove me more than other things. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Tough times, Simon. Tough times. I, I'm intrigued there. You, you talked about this competitiveness and the sense of right and wrong. Are, are they your guiding principles as, as a human? I think guiding principles are more noble than that. Alan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are yours then? I think I think I think the sense of right and wrong is is a guiding principle. I think the sense of entitlement and and the oh, that's the wrong way of putting it. I think the things the sense of entitlement is exactly what I disagree with. I think everybody has has basic human rights, and I think everybody deserves to be treated as a as the person they are. And I think that we we have an obligation in education to provide absolutely the best education for the kids in our school. Now that. What that looks like differs radically according to the type of school you're in. You know, I think that first part of my career, which I loved teaching in really low income, really uh, socially deprived areas, you know, they were fantastic times and I wouldn't have given them up for a moment. And then going into international schools, which is the other end of the spectrum, it's been really interesting as well. And it's had some real highs and, and you know, we talked about some lows. So I think that sense, yeah, that's a, that's a guiding value. I think, I think, Treating my, my dad used to say, I'm talking about my dad quite a lot actually. Um, my dad used to say, only, only, only the rich can afford not to have manners, you know. And I think that's a really true statement. I think just because you're a leader, it doesn't mean you, you don't treat teachers or security guards or, or, or janitors with respect. It means that you, you, you've got to treat them with more respect. You're a role model, you're, you, you're kind of you're the person that people are looking at to set the scene. So I think that whole kind of looking after people, and I, get, I derive a huge amount of um, pleasure from doing that as well. You know, there's no doubt about it. I love that moment where something that you've done to help someone has really had a, had a positive impact, you know, sort of really strong service learning programs are kind of my uh, justification for, for working in fee-paying um, teaching environments. You know, it's that. So it's it's self-serving to some degree as well. But those are the values. The competitiveness, I would probably turn on its head and say that's been. While it's while it's got me to do some things I maybe wouldn't have done, but I don't think it's I, it, it's not something I would put there as a value. I think it's it's almost an anti-value. And if I look at my competitiveness, it, it probably isn't it isn't one of my uh, my, my 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 strongest uh, what's the word for it strongest attributes as no, you've you all seen. You've already linked the competitiveness, and it's, it's easy for for everyone to make the same assumption that that comes from sport and that comes from your background of playing sport from a young age. Would that be fair? And, and what what has sport taught you that has that has helped you in the had over the years? I think my brother probably having a, a younger brother almost the same age as me who played all the same sports as me who I think I, I think there's a fair and, and people will say the same about Tom as they say about me I'm rather over competitive or highly competitive so I think that's part of it I think it's, it's interesting isn't it so I, I, I was a reasonable I mean I was a, a, a reasonable sportsman I was a reasonable athlete um, and 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 but I always gravitated towards team sports because I think, I think my, my over-competitiveness was to some degree blurred by being in a, in a team. Um, rugby was my game. Um, so I think that helped and I love that. And I'm, I'm a very social person. So I love, I love, you know, winning together, losing together, whatever you want to call it. Um, was it shaped? Did, did it make me more competitive? I think, I think, I think that concept of, of, of the harder you work, the better you get is something that I've really sat with. And I think that's true. And I've learned that from sport. I would also say, and I've said this, I've said this to a lot of people, I didn't get anywhere near as much joy out of playing sport as I should have done. Because it all revolved around winning and losing. 
And even when I won, I was self-critical to a point of not really making the experience enjoyable. So I think that, and it wasn't until I stopped playing sports seriously, and even my serious wasn't that serious. Um, and I, I then took a couple of years off playing rugby and then went back to play vets in New Zealand and, and, and just loved it and had a ball and carried on playing a kind of vets in Hong Kong and just sort of reflected back and thought, why didn't I take this attitude into the type of rugby I played when I was younger? I'd have been a better player and I'd have enjoyed it. So I don't think the sport, but I do think that kind of um, how you get on with other people, how you get the best out of other people. Um, rugby's got this great thing about, or it did have, I'm not sure it still has, but it, you didn't really, you didn't really say anything negative to other people. You just accentuated the positives. You let the negatives go. It was kind of very much, uh, and it's a, a team game where if you've got one weak link, doesn't matter how good they are, if they don't actually front up and do the basics well and 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 take their role defensively, someone gets hurt. And I like that. It's that kind of you don't have to be the greatest player in the world, but you have to commit to the cause. Um, I think that's a that's that I take, and I know that when. You know, knowing as a person that if you're not going to do what you have to do, somebody else is suffering. That, that I do take from sport. I think that's really important. If you're not going to do it, somebody else is going to have to do it for you. If you're, if you're going to take a back seat, you're just throwing the ball to someone else. And I think that philosophically as a, as a leader, but also just as a colleague, is really important that, you know, you all, you all, you all bear the load. You all, you all take part of, the, uh, part of the load. So I think that's been, that's been really important to me. Um, yeah so I, yes lots of stuff but was it sport that led to that or me that led to sport I don't know yeah and also getting through the bad times you know and just kind of accepting I, I, you've heard, I, I think failure is the place we do the most learning um, and I think that making mistakes and you know if you play sport in your life there's some pretty howling mistakes that you remember very well you know and you get through and you get up and you go and do the next thing yeah, I, I look at that, Simon, and I, I totally agree with that. I wish I'd have enjoyed my sport a lot more. It was always, it was almost, you're playing to avoid defeat uh, yeah. when you're younger days. And, and it's, it, yeah, you lose your joy in that sense. And it's only when you, you get to our age now and a bit older, you wish you'd have had more good times. And I'm, I'm just intrigued by that. Then. So what advice would you give to your younger self? Be kinder to yourself. Yeah. Stop the negative self-talk. You know, I don't, I don't get me wrong. I, I think, you know, if, if things don't go well and, or if things do go well, reflection is a huge part of the learning process. But you don't, have to, you don't have to keep beating yourself up for two weeks over a game. You know what I mean? You just, so I think be kind to yourself. Stop the negative self-talk at a point. But that doesn't mean that you just... So that whole thing of mindfulness, you know, is mindfulness just a way of getting on with with all the rubbish in the world and ignoring it and, and, and just, just being insular. And it's not, you know, it is a tool you can use to detach yourself for a period of time and, and, and get better at focusing your attention. And I think that's true as well to turn around and say, just be kind to yourself and, and don't worry about the mistakes. That's stupid because yeah. the mistakes are the real learning points, but you don't carry on beating yourself up about the mistakes for the next three, four weeks, you know? And so I think be kind to yourself. Um, and, how, you did know, you, how did you transfer a bit more in the good stuff as well? You know, when it, when it does go well, make sure you, you, you remember that beyond the, the five minutes that the end of the, the euphoria at the end of the game. Yeah, sorry. Sorry there. I just, I, I, how did you transfer that over with, with Fred and Georgia then? As a dad, I'm quite intrigued as, as they're getting older now, my kids. It, the advice that you give to your younger self, what did you do with Fred and Georgia to, in their sort of experiences growing up? Didn't talk to Georgia at all because whatever I told her to do, she'd do the opposite um, <laughs> or use that strategically. Uh, so Georgia just did her own thing. And Georgia is, Georgia's actually, funny enough, is, is probably the more com fiercely competitive of the two. I gets really frustrated and, uh, and, and to some degree that's... Uh... Fred was really a really interesting kind of... He's so different from me in some senses. So... I actually had to drag Fred along to trainings and drag him to places to go and play. He kind of has no understanding of his own capabilities. And I'd say that in a very positive way. He's a lot better than he thinks he is. Um, and he's very shy and reticent about that. And, and he was really good at just walking off a field, 
he'd walk on the field and give everything he could and he'd walk off the field and it actually he wouldn't sit and get frustrated about it and get you know so he naturally kind of would enjoy his sport more probably um, than I did but that having said that I'm not entirely sure that was true of me when I was at school I think probably I enjoyed my sport more when I was at school and it was when I became an adult so maybe the question is um, I mean my conversations with Fred now are very much around and Georgia very much around yeah that must be must be a bit rubbish and you know and, and what can you do about it next time and and try and put it to bed and try and just move on. But I think, you know, you kind of described it. Now. I think to some degree that as a sportsman, you can, you can get, you can paralyze yourself and, and not be willing to take risks and have a go at stuff because you're more worried about failing than you are about. Um, you're more worried about making a mistake than you are about, about succeeding. And I think that, that giving people wings a little bit on the field and, and, and accepting defeat for learning, to some degree, and I don't know how that translates. I was thinking about this the other day with watching the um, watching the Last Dance. You know, and is Jordan's behaviour justifiable? Because as much as it was a glossed-up version, he was obviously, excuse my French, a horrible—I'm not going to swear now—a horrible <laughs> teammate to play with. Yeah, he you. might have been the most exceptional basketball player, and I've no doubt he was. And I'm, I'm, I, you know, even with the fact it was it was his company that produced it, I, d I don't think that's that's a debatable. Uh, he, he was probably one of, if not the best player that's uh, that's graced the uh, graced the courts. But would you want to go to work every day with a person like that? Was his behaviour towards teammates justifiable? Was it necessary? Um, you know, you could say it's justifiable because he took these teams to six titles, but at what cost? So that, that would be, a, even at the professional level, you know, where the only thing that matters is winning. I still just wonder, you know, I think that's a really interesting kind of, you know, conversation to have. Are there better ways of doing it? You know, Phil Jackson came over as a very interesting man to, to be, to play yeah, for. Um, and I, and I bet, he was better at managing people like Michael Jordan by the time he got to the LA Lakers and, and dealing with the Kobe Bryants. And, you know, I think Michael Jordan, in effect, was a runaway train and you were either on it or you weren't, you know. He's got a bit of a lag. Yeah, we, we wrote an article on, on The Last Dance and it, it's, it's such a fascinating series. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. And for, for me there, I look at Steve Kerr as the real hero. He's the one who just grafted alongside, took it all in, and then he goes on and becomes the really the top human being, the infinite learner that we talk about, and yeah. done as a yeah. really strong coaching career, um, just a really top nice guy. And I asked I asked someone last night about it, and would you, do you want your child to grow up as Michael Jordan? And that's it's a really tough sort of question. Would you want Fred to grow up as Michael Jordan? Or would you want him to be a Steve Kerr? This is do you want do you want any of your kids to be professional sportsmen? <laughs> and, and, and what that requires? That's a, I think that's a really good question. I think, you know, there was a period with football in the UK, certainly with rugby, where you could... You, the levels and the intensity of training that everyone was going to... And tennis, you know, they weren't doing the training they're doing now. And now, to be close to what they're doing, you, you, you're investing your whole life. And it's a very, you know, myopic existence, isn't it? So I, I remember going over to the Australian Institute of Sport and watching the gymnasts and just sitting there and thinking, you know, even if my daughter or my son was that good and had that much potential, would I want them going through this? And kind of the answer to myself was, no, I wouldn't. You know, and that was, that was when rugby was on that cusp of um, professionalism where you know, a lot of players were still going out and having really kind of cool lives and doing what they liked and turning up training three times a week and getting paid for it. Now, that's a bit more attractive to me. Um, yeah. but, you know, so do I want my kids to be a professional? Would I like my kids to be a professional sportsman? No, probably not. And, and possibly if I did, it would be so I could turn around and go, oh, look, you know, so-and-so is a professional sportsman. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that question is. But I think there's a lot more to sport than professionals. And, uh, yeah. And a lot more joy in sport outside professionalism. Sunderland until I die is a classic, isn't it? You know, the kind of the underbelly of being a journeyman and being a being a, a kind of not winning. And yeah, I think they're really interesting 
really interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of great, great documentaries out at the moment. The, the Man City ones, the, the All Blacks one on Amazon Prime is brilliant as well. And yeah. That just links in quite nicely to, to our last three sort of questions, Simon. All Blacks talk about leaving a legacy. Does that matter to you? Does leaving a legacy matter? Yeah, but it's leaving a legacy with people. Okay. You know, my favourite moments of being a, being a teacher are when... A kid knocks on your door as a head teacher and asks for help. No, it's like, that's, and, and you're able to help them and, and get them out the other end. Um, you know, that, that's a legacy for me. Uh, maybe maybe watching, watching people's careers that you've helped shape on the way blossom. That's a legacy for me. Um, is a legacy, is Garden a legacy? Is BSM a legacy? No, I look back on it with pride, but I don't look back on it with anywhere near as much pride as, say, some of my colleagues have worked at both schools and how, how we've worked together and the stuff we've done um, and the impact we've had on kids. So I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of that. Yes. You want to make a difference, don't you? You want to make a difference in the world. And I think education is an amazing place to make a difference, but you're making a difference to people's lives and possibly their difference to other people's lives. And that's, that's, that's pretty heady. That goes way beyond the, is garden more successful than it used to be? Is BSN more successful than it used to be? So yeah, you get moments where it manifests itself in a way that you makes you go, "Wow, I'm so pleased I was part of that." But it's going to be more about, you know, those kids that you just, you know, we we know, you know, a member of your football team, Alan, who was, uh, you know, transformed him as a child or a young man, and, and and that's a legacy that I will kind of be more uh, attached to than possibly, you know, the reputation of BSM or Garden. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's hard to justify what what success is in in, in education. Yeah. It's really it's hard. That what, yeah. Um, what's your three non-negotiables as a leader? As for my behaviour or behaviour of others? Of others. Honestly. Um, and transparency, so people who are just, just up front with you. I mean, I don't know if I'm allowed to share this, Lewis, but you know, I, very fun. almost makes me laugh. Lewis is one of the most positive people I've ever worked with. And, and we, I did this thing where I spoke to every member of staff in the school and possibly the most negative conversation I had was with Lewis. It was just, he, it was just up to his eyeballs. And I just thought, fair play, he's coming and he's been honest and that's that, you know, and it's, and it's not like him. But I think, that, I think that's a bit of a, 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 a no-brainer for me. Um, so honesty, transparency. What's your last one? No, honesty and transparency are the same. Oh, thing. they're this. Same God, you got two more. I then. think. I think. I think. As a leader of education, I think it's about caring for people around you. Yeah. Um, and so caring for the teachers, caring for the students, and, and neither one first, kind of in equal quantities. And sometimes you have to. You have to prioritise as a kid, and sometimes you have to prioritise as a teacher. But but that that kind of that that thing about about being 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 caring to those around you. Um, and again, as a teacher, being passionate about what you do and recognising what lucky people we are to be in a business that changes the lives of others. Um, yeah, I think we, Kim will, Kim will say, you know, you, you'll, never, you'll never come across moaners quite like you come across moaners in education. And I think that's <laughs> fair enough to some degree, but we're incredibly lucky people to be doing what we're doing and having done what we've done. And, you know, we were making it, you know, that, that, that whole pillar of meaning around the wellbeing piece, we've got meaning in spades. We go, we go to work every day because of meaning. We just forget about it sometimes. Um, and sometimes we just need to be reminded it's uh, it's 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 kind of a privilege in many ways to be able to make a difference to people's lives and and, and have something that that's kind of bigger than us that we, we're contributing to. That's about seven non-negotiables. Well, okay, there we've got honesty, transparency, caring. No, that's the same one. And, pa- <laughs> and being passionate. And if I'd a, if I'd have had a, if they'd had a fiver beforehand on looking at what your core values are, I think they would have been amongst there actually, as well as your non-negotiables. 
yeah. <laughs> well, probably. Yeah. Last last one from us then, Simon. If um if you're going to go out tomorrow for a a meal and a, and a few glasses of wine with some of the world's best, greatest leaders or people, who would be the three people that you you want with? Nelson Mandela, but can't have him. Um, oh, Barack Obama. Obama would be would be an amazing person to sit down with. Probably be completely out of my depth. Um, <laughs> that's that imposter syndrome coming back. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think that's just honest and straight, mate. Um, <laughs> so people have made it. Oh. One more. I suppose if I'm really going for it, I'm really going for it. I'm not entirely sure he'd be the best drinking partner, but Gandhi'd be interesting, wouldn't he? Um, <laughs> somewhere in there, somewhere in there, let's, 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 who'd be a bit of fun? Uh, There's three Mandela. there, Mandela, Mandela, Obama and Gandhi, that's a three. Well, I think there are people, I think if you're looking at, at leaders you have the utmost respect for, pretty hard to move past those three um, as transformational leaders who put themselves way behind um you know they they were no way the the reason they didn't do it for themselves they did it for others i think they'd be uh, they'd be right up there whether they whether they'd be the best dinner guests though this is another question i'd probably <laughs> rather go out for a couple of beers with you and alan if we could get alan to drink a beer <laughs> well, well, that get... <laughs> thanks a lot for coming on for a chat thank you very much for spending time with me it's nice to see you both in Manila. Much appreciated, man. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Much appreciated. Right. Thanks a lot, Simon.